Good morning. It is Sunday, March 28th. I'm Ali Velshi, live in Minneapolis for our special eight minutes and 48, 46 seconds. That is infamously the amount of time that former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin is alleged to have knelt on George Floyd's neck until Floyd died. I'm outside the Hennepin County Courthouse, where just in about 24 hours, Chauvin's trial is set to begin. The trial is expected to take several weeks. It'll be televised and will be perhaps the most closely watched trial in modern history in the United States. I'll be joined shortly by the co-lead counsel for the family of George Floyd and later by the city official who led the charge to defund Minneapolis police in the wake of the George Floyd killing. As you know, I spent a good amount of time in Minneapolis in the immediate aftermath of the Floyd killing, helping to document the protest movement and and the movement that was ignited by it. Well, I'm back today for the same reason, to bear witness to what this city and its citizens are going through in this critical moment. And on this trip, I spoke with black people from this community about what they expect from the trial while it's unfolding and in the aftermath, both inside and outside the courtroom, as well as the state of present day Minneapolis. What's changed for the better and for the worse and what still needs work. You'll hear from those citizens later in the show, but throughout the hour, we will examine both the prosecution and the defense in this case, in addition to the tremendous stakes that this trial represents, not just for Derek Chauvin, but for racial justice, policing, and civil rights in this country because more than anything, the trial of Derek Chauvin and the death of George Floyd will end up being far more than the trial of one police officer and the death of one black man. This is a test of the system. Black people have for years pointed out that killings by police are merely contemporary lynchings, extrajudicial killings meted out without legal deliberation or adjudication. Well, to some without experience or firsthand knowledge of these interactions, that sounded unlikely. But then videos started to appear and we watched people snuff the life out of black people suspected of committing petty crimes or in many cases, no crimes at all. But they were dead and there was evidence. Now, I'm not a lawyer and I'm not the jury. All I know about the death of George Floyd is what the entire world knows, that after his arrest with Chauvin's knee on his neck, Floyd complained about being unable to breathe until he had no more breath left in him. Despite telling police what has been documented as more than 20 times that he couldn't breathe, and despite onlookers pleading with police to let him breathe, there Chauvin remained for several minutes. Floyd begged for Chauvin not to kill him. Then he lost consciousness. Still, Chauvin didn't rise. When bystanders protested, Chauvin pulled out Mace. When they asked police to check Floyd's pulse, a fellow officer did, and he found none. Still, Chauvin did not rise. An ambulance arrived. Chauvin did not rise. In the end, after medical technicians found Floyd to be unresponsive, Chauvin stood up. George Floyd died with Derek Chauvin's knee on his neck, and it was all captured on video. The question here is, what more does anyone need? Joining me now is the founder and president of the National Action Network, Reverend Al Sharpton. He's the host of Politics Nation here on MSNBC. Tonight, he, along with civil rights attorney Ben Crump, will join the Floyd family for a prayer vigil and a rally. And last year, he delivered George Floyd's eulogy at the family's request. Rev, this is going to be a fraught moment in uh, in Minneapolis. I'm here in front of the, the courthouse where this will take place. And as you've seen, there's fencing all around this courthouse, uh, high security, and a lot of uncertainty as to what this uh, this trial will hold. What are you looking for? 
We are looking for justice. I, I think that when you look at the fact over the last several years, from some cases from uh, half a decade ago or more uh, to now, the question is, one, the evidence against Derek Shaven and this particular case that is outlined by the prosecutor and whether or not the prosecutor can just present the facts. And I think the facts speak for themselves. But the overall case is whether uh, the United States has the capacity to deal with a white law enforcement officer when they kill a black member of the black community or black American. We are looking at the fact that in the case of Eric Garner, where there was a tape, it never even went to trial. They wouldn't even prosecute the policeman. When we look at the case of Michael Brown and Ferguson, no indictment. We look at cases all over the country, going back to Mia Rice, uh, Breonna Taylor, all over the country. So really this case will culminate not only the evidence against Derek Chapin, which must be independently looked at by this jury, but it must also be looked at by Americans saying when you have facts this clear and you laid out in a very methodical way, can this country's judicial system, justice system, convict a white officer for killing a black man or black woman? Does our lives have any value at the hands of law enforcement, whatever the circumstances? That's what we're looking at in this trial. And Rev, you pointed out a number of examples over the decades where this has happened, that, that black people have died at the hands of police. Uh, there has often not been as much video evidence as there is in this case, but in Eric Garner's case, for instance, there was. Can that justice that you and other civil rights leaders and black Americans and all Americans are looking for, can that justice be achieved if there is not a conviction in this trial? It would be very questionable, and we'd have to see what would make it not achievable in this trial, given the facts we know going in. Now, I'm sure the defense will raise its uh, points of view and its evidence, and they have the right to do so. They will also try to smear George Floyd and try to make him appear to be in some ways uh, 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 responsible for his own death, which I can't even fathom how they do that. But no matter how much they smear him, we're going to stand with this family. As you said, I did the eulogy at, at the funeral there in Minneapolis and in Houston. This family will have to relive one of the most painful experiences of their life. And that's why we want to join them at Reverend Billy Mitchell's church in Minneapolis today to have prayer with them on the eve of what is going to be painful for them. No settlement can pay you for watching your brother plead for his life, reach out for his dead mother, and he become dead. And now the whole world is watching to see if the policeman that did that pays their dues. So we're going to stand with them, Attorney Crump and I, uh, we'll stand with them tonight with Reverend Mitchell and members of the faith community there in Minneapolis to let the family know at the end of the day, it is a issue, a cause for us, but it is a blood relative for them and that many of us around the world are standing with them at this hour. Uh, Reverend, you have dealt with police and cities uh, over the decades in cases like this. In the case of the settlement with the Floyd family for $27 million, uh, you're absolutely right. No amount of money ever brings a person back. But there is something that will cause 
uh, cities and police forces to think twice if settlements like this are going to result. Police are endlessly complaining about not having enough money. Well, when a city costs 27, has to pay $27 million because of what was determined in a civil case to be a wrongful death, uh, that could result in changes that are positive for black people. Well, that could, and, and to go a step further, if we can make uh, the George Floyd uh, uh, Justice for Policing Act law, it has already passed the House of Representatives. If we could pass it in the Senate, it raises also exposure to individual police officers. They would take their training more seriously if they knew that their family and them could lose their homes, lose their cars if their qualified immunity is dealt with in this new legislation. So this is a moment that we need to reimagine policing all over the country in terms of accountability, where cities and individual officers understand it will cost you to keep violating people's life. It's the worth of our lives that has always been at stake since blacks were brought in 1619, told we were less than human, subhuman, then three-fifths of a man. Now we must deal in the criminal justice system on the value of our lives. Are you guilty of a crime if you kill us? And will you have to pay if you take away from that family the cost of a human life? We are still answering the question of do blacks have the same value as others in this country? And that's what the George Floyd trial will bring back to every living American and people all over the world. Rev, we're going to see you later on today in uh, Minneapolis. Thanks always for taking the time to join us uh, in the morning. Reverend Al Sharpton is the president and the founder of the National Action Network and the host of MSNBC's Politics Nation. Don't forget to catch Rev later today live here in Minneapolis for a special edition of Politics Nation at 5 p.m. Eastern. Right after that, at 6 p.m. Eastern, Ari Melber, my colleague, is going to discuss the strategies of the prosecution and the defense and explore what the outcome could mean for the future of policing in America. And later in this show, I am going to talk about what reimagining policing looks like across America and in this city. As I just mentioned, the city of Minneapolis has already reached a $27 million settlement with George Floyd's family to settle a wrongful death lawsuit. Derek Chauvin faces charges of second degree unintentional murder, third degree murder, and second degree manslaughter. In addition to the video footage, showing Derek Chauvin kneeling on the neck of George Floyd's neck, uh, leaning on his neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds, while Floyd said he couldn't breathe until he couldn't breathe so much that he died. Floyd's death was declared a homicide by the Hennepin County Medical Examiner's Office, and separately, two independent autopsies commissioned by the Floyd family concluded that he died from asphyxiation from sustained pressure that no underlying health conditions played a part. But getting justice for, for Floyd's killing is simply not that simple. The defense is expected to argue that George Floyd health conditions did play a role in his death, as did the drug fentanyl, a drug which uh, the original Hennepin County Medical Office, uh, uh, the examiner's office report concluded uh, might have been one of the other conditions that have been involved in Floyd's death which also included heart disease. The prosecution is being led by Minnesota Attorney General Keith Ellison, who was appointed by the governor days after the incident last year. 
Three other ex-officers involved in Floyd's arrests are set to stand trial in August on a variety of charges related to the killing. However, all of those cases, those other three cases, would turn to dust without a conviction in the Chauvin trial, which begins tomorrow. Joining me now, L. Chris Stewart, co-lead counsel for the family of George Floyd. He was the trial attorney for Rayshard Brooks, Walter Scott, and Alton Sterling. He's now managing partner for Stuart Miller Simmons trial attorneys. Chris, good to see you again. Thank you for uh, being with us. Chris, let me ask you, you and I had this conversation last week, part of which Reverend Al and I just had, and that is that this settlement for $27 million has brought this home to Minneapolis residents. It's brought this home who are not black in many cases. This is not a majority black city. It's brought it home to the city council. It's brought it home to the police. What does justice look like for you? Is it a conviction in this case, or is it the necessary change that came out of the killing of George Floyd and, and reverberated across the country that may cause police to think twice before they could participate in the end of the life of a black person? Right now, the focus is getting Derek Shelvin behind bars for uh, at least 40 years. Um, that That's the entire focus right now. And hopefully that conviction will have that echo across the country that will create that change where officers think twice. Chris, there are a lot of people out there who are uh, following this narrative that suggests that George Floyd had drugs in his system uh, and those drugs uh, caused him to stop breathing or, or his heart to stop working. That's the case that the defense is, is going to make, that, that it wasn't Derek Chauvin's knee on his neck that killed him. Uh, how viable is that? I mean, they have to come up with something. Uh, it's ridiculous to us, but um, it doesn't excuse what happened. You know, that that's like saying if I had uh, a few drinks and I'm walking down the street and a police officer comes up to me and decides to physically put his hands around my neck and choke me to death, that his lawyers can blame, oh, well, he did have some drinks. Uh, it's ridiculous, but they have to argue something. Uh, we believe the jury will see through it. One of the things you've done in representing the families of men uh, killed by police is that often, uh, it's an old lawyer term, but it's uh, often they will talk about how the victim in the case was no choir boy. That's going to come up with George Floyd, uh, that initially the call was for uh, what you and I would call a petty crime. That's a separate discussion about how we should be dealing with petty crimes in society. But how uh, how does one fight back against the accusation that George Floyd, George Floyd, in the opinion of the defense, was not what they would call a model citizen. How do we get past this idea that whether or not you are what the police def define as a model citizen, death should not be the outcome? Well, Derek Chauvin isn't a model citizen either. Uh, he had multiple complaints prior to this. Um, so he's not a model citizen uh, if they're going to argue that George wasn't. Uh, it's just that the spotlight is never put on the officer's history. <clears throat> and background um, like it is on the victim. So, um, you know, I don't think that there'll be room in this trial for, for name calling when uh, Derek Chauvin has the history that he has. What do you think uh, changes or has changed so far? You and I have had occasion to talk in the last year, and in fact, you represent the family of yet another man who was killed by police uh, in, in, uh, after George Floyd was, again, for something that people didn't believe 
a man should be killed for. Has policing of black lives, black bodies, changed for the better in the last year, or are we no better than we were on March 29th in this city? You know, some cities have implemented changes, but um, like Rev said, uh, you know, before, uh, until the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act is passed, you know, we're going to be back in the same spot. Um, some cities are taking proactive measures, but it needs to be done nationally. Chris, good to see you as always. Thank you for joining us. Chris Stewart is the co-lead counsel for the family of George Floyd. We will talk again. Well, lawmakers from both sides of the aisle took trips to the southern border uh, this week, but they had very different takeaways. One especially wild observation came from Republican Senator Steve Daines of Montana, who claims that migrants are hurting Montana's homegrown meth business. You can't make this stuff up. We're going to talk about that in a moment. Velshi's back after this. Hey, it's Chris Hayes. This week on my podcast, Why Is This Happening? Evangelical pastor and director of Vote Common Good, Doug Paget, on the rise of Christian nationalism and what's at stake in this year's election. We lack a story in this country about what our politics are supposed to achieve. And when we suggest to them that the common good can be your voting identity, rather than being Republican or being a Democrat or being fiscally this or that, big government or small government, but you care about the common good, people are like, oh yeah, that that I actually care about. That's this week on Why Is This Happening. Search for Why Is This Happening wherever you're listening right now and subscribe. As more and more migrants attempt to cross the border on Friday, Texas Senators uh, Ted Cruz and John Cornyn led a group of nearly 20 Republican Senate colleagues to the border in the Rio Grande Valley. The group received briefings from officials. They toured the Customs and Border Protection Facility in Donna, Texas. They took a boat tour in uh, the city of Mission. They also took a, a nighttime border tour led by the National Border Patrol Council. Now, according to the official Senate Republicans' Twitter account, the senators, quote, saw the massive influx of migrant crossings and were heckled by cartels. Now, at a news conference, all 18 senators explained the reason for the trip was to demonstrate that the border is, quote, the biggest issue facing the country in many ways right now. I'll just tell you, it's not. But the conference strangely detoured when Montana's Republican senator, Steve Daines, explained why the migrant surge is hurting his state, Montana, specifically. Listen to this. Refer every hour they spend processing the flood of illegal immigrants coming across the border is an hour that is taken away from being in the front lines defending our country and stopping the flood of Mexican meth, Mexican heroin, Mexican fentanyl. 20 years ago in Montana, meth was homemade. It was homegrown. And it had purity levels less than 30%. Today, the meth that is getting into Montana is Mexican cartel. Ah, the good old days when Montana's meth was homegrown and apparently not that pure. It appears that the senator never saw the recent news story that found two Montana crystal meth traffickers who were arrested in November with reported ties to Mexican cartels. So while the senator might have high hopes to make, a meth, make meth America again or something like that, it appears his state's organic meth farmers are just fine with their Mexican cartel collaboration. I'm not really sure the point that Danes was trying to make there. 
All right, well, in another state, Coca-Cola, Delta, Home Depot, UPS, what do these huge companies have in common? They are some of the biggest companies headquartered in Georgia. We're going to take a look at one of them that's hitting some turbulence after defending a voting bill that's both restrictive and inhumane. We'll have more on that when Velshi returns. I want Delta to act um, as if they have the courage of their convictions. We know that they understand the importance of the right to vote. They have taken actions, recent and in the past, that have demonstrated that they are committed to the right to vote. And so their silence in this moment is low-key betrayal. That was Nsay Ufot, the chair of the New Georgia Project, on this show last Sunday, asking Delta to do the bare minimum, to work to uphold voting rights for all Georgians. That didn't happen. In fact, the Atlanta-based company did something quite surprising. The airline released a statement defending Georgia's bill that restricts voting, painting a much rosier picture of the legislation, saying, quote, the legislation signed this week improved considerably during the legislative process and expands weekend voting, codifies Sunday voting, and protects a voter's ability to cast an absentee ballot without providing a reason. Not quite sure Delta read the same bill the rest of us read. The statement goes on and on with praise, but it ignores some of the most egregious pieces of the bill, like making it illegal to give voters food and water in line and allowing the state legislature to seize control of a county's election if it's unhappy with the results. In the end, the legislation will disenfranchise black voters. Republican Governor Brian Kemp signed the bill into law last week, surrounded by a group of white men, ironically, with that picture. See that picture in the background? It's a picture of a slave plantation. On the other side of the door, the state representative, Park Cannon, the woman in the red you're about to see, was being hauled away in handcuffs for knocking on that door. She was on the other side of the doors. They took her away. Now Delta, along with other Georgia-based companies like Coca-Cola, UPS, and Home Depot, they're all headquartered there. They are now facing pressure and possibly boycotts if they don't step up for Georgia citizens. Erin Haynes is the editor-at-large for the 19th. She joins me now. Uh, and Aaron, listen, I, I'm, a, I'm a pretty loyal Delta customer. I'm on there a lot. This is, this is disturbing. This is disturbing that these companies, it's one thing if Delta didn't do anything or, or, or didn't, didn't comment on it, but they actually wrote up this memo that uh, was distributed internally that suggested that there have been improvements to this bill that preserve the rights of voting. What the truth is, Aaron, is that some of the bad parts of the bill came out and a lot of the bad parts stayed in. Well, listen, Allie, I hear you. I'm an Atlanta native, as you know, and uh, not only that, but my mom was an, a Delta flight attendant for more than 30 years. And, and Delta is a company uh, that looms very large, uh, especially uh, for Atlantans in particular. Uh, companies like Delta, uh, Coca-Cola, as you mentioned, UPS. I mean, these are like the holy trinity uh, of companies that, that Georgians uh, especially are very loyal to in Atlanta. And, and frankly, when, when these kinds of businesses speak uh, in, in Georgia, uh, lawmakers tend to listen. Delta was involved, you may remember, uh, in a showdown with the former lieutenant governor over, over uh, gun legislation uh, in, the, in the Gold Dome just in 2017. Uh, but look, if you want to go back even further than this, Atlanta, you know, has uh, the nickname, uh, the city too busy to hate. 
And a lot of that moniker, which which was um, you know created by by former uh, Atlanta mayor uh, Hartsfield, was was built around the idea uh, that Atlanta's economic future was really tied to uh, the city's commitment to um, you know diversity and and racial progress. And so uh, you know to have a company like Delta, which which was certainly pressured by black uh, ac- activists like uh, the New Georgia Project, Black Voters Matter, uh, Fair Fight, et cetera, uh, to weigh in on this voting rights legislation. Uh, those activists uh, tell me that they are are disappointed. I just saw, uh, you know, uh, Latasha Brown was tweeting uh, at how uh, she felt like Delta's statement was disrespectful, uh, them choosing to focus on some of those kind of last minute um, changes to the bill instead of the, the very onerous uh, things uh, that, that you alluded to that, that ended up making it into uh, that legislation at the last minute of being signed into law by the governor. And it's not just good corporate citizenship, right? It's not just that because you're, you're, you're located there and you pay your taxes there and maybe you give contributions to some of these politicians. It's more than that. When you look at Delta, you look at UPS, you look at Home Depot, you look at Coca-Cola, and there are many others. Georgia is a really big hub for American business. These are people who draw not only their workers, like your mom, but their customers from that base. The reason I'm a Delta loyalist is because I worked for CNN for 12 years and, and, and it, CNN was an Atlanta company. And so, so th- there's a million reasons why these companies need to be on the right side of things for their workers, for their company, for their, for their customers, uh, not just their shareholders. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, what these activists and, and what activists have long known is, is that, you know, you're right. It's not, it's not just a, a moral uh, imperative, but but an economic one, and you have customers uh, speaking with their dollars uh, to reflect their values. And so, you know, the thought uh, now uh, that this law has passed, and and you know, depending on how companies came down uh, on the side of this law, uh, I think you're going to continue to see activists uh, putting pressure on these companies. Uh, you know, uh, attempting. Uh, to, to shame these companies, uh, especially companies who they felt like didn't do the right thing uh, while this law was making its way through uh, through the legislature. Uh, you've already got, uh, you know, Major League Baseball considering pulling the All-Star game out of Atlanta as a result of this bill passing. And so uh, we know that, that, that yep. when, um, you know, these social issues, uh, you know, become codified, that there are often economic consequences uh, to, to these kinds of things. Uh, we've got a story up at 19news.org right now about, uh, you know, the economic costs of, of some of these LGBTQ laws against transgender folks. Uh, you know, the governor of South Dakota, Christy Nome, uh, just, you know, declining to sign uh, that transgender legislation, uh, you know, because there were going to be, you know, a potential economic impact uh, to her state. And so uh, I, I think, Folks know that uh, both, uh, you know, lawmakers, but also the folks that are that are pushing them uh, on some of these bills uh, know that that there can be an economic impact. And sometimes that, if not, you know, kind of the moral impact of some of these some of these laws can can change minds when, uh, you know, people's consciences don't necessarily compel them to do that. And remember, corporate pressure on Indiana with anti-gay legislation and on North Carolina with anti-trans legislation with the, the bathroom bill had a major, major impact. So my message to all of you out there, Delta, Coca-Cola, UPS, Home Depot, and others, uh, I am your customer. Many of us are your customers. We like your products. We love your companies. Uh, but all of that can change if, if, uh, if you're on the wrong side of the arc of history. And right now, you companies are on the wrong side of the arc of history. Aaron Hayes, always good to see you, my friend. Aaron is the editor-at-large for the 19th 
and an MSNBC continue, uh, contributor. Coming up next, my special conversation with folks from the Minneapolis area as they reflect on the last 10 months of life since the death of George Floyd, plus their thoughts about racism in policing and where that dialogue stands today. Opening statements begin tomorrow in one of the highest profile murder trials in recent memory. Former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin is charged with second and third degree murder and manslaughter for his role in the death of George Floyd last spring. To get a sense of where this battered city is on the eve of the trial, I held a socially distant conversation with six people from the Minneapolis area, some of whom I'd met before and others whom I had not. We discussed a range of topics surrounding racial justice, the state of policing in America, and the upcoming murder trial. But I began by asking them what the last year has meant to them. I think over the last year, we've really seen that we've started to gain eyes from outside of our community. And I think that um, it's been really interesting because what black people and black women have been saying for generations is now in front of everybody to just digest. It is exciting and it's very exhausting at the same time because we've been we've been saying this. Like we've been saying this ad nauseum for years and it it took something so monumental and so tragic for people to start to listen to us. One of the biggest things I've noticed um, just in my small day-to-day world is that white people are more likely to bring up race. It doesn't always have to be me. I feel like people, white people have more of a consciousness about issues now that, you know, if I was the only black person in the room, it used to always have to be me to to bring up those issues. I did an event recently, um, an alumni event for Women's History Month, and um, a white woman raised her hand and said, you know, I really think that it's important to bring up race and intersectionality because, you know, gender is not the only identity that a lot of us have. And to be honest, I feel like a year ago that probably would have had to been me who brought that up. I've been teaching during the pandemic. I've also... Um, was named Minnesota Teacher of the Year. And so a lot of things have been happening in my personal life and I'm trying to reckon that with what's happening in Minneapolis and seemingly all around America. Um, My students are asking really critical and thoughtful questions. They're leaning in. My students have showed a lot of interest in what's happening around them. And I think, you know, their adults sometimes want to shield them, but the reality is, is that kids are aware and they want to talk about it. And Um, I'm ready to discuss that with them. Well, this is really the paradox of the moment, that as white people around the country are waking up to the issues of white supremacy culture, black people, black and brown people, we have been living here for a lifetime. And so the questions, the comments, the deep interest, it's appreciated, right? But um, that's a lot of emotional labor to address all the curiosity of white people uh, who are green and new and curious. And for me, and for those people that I support and represent, um, there's resistance to doing that emotional labor with white people because we're in a place where we have to, me included, attend to our own emotional pain, attend to our own black pain. And so what we really want, what I really want, is for white people to congregate with white people and begin to ask each other the questions, to do the work, to do their research, to put in the labor of making sense and dismantling white supremacy culture. 
Pastor, this has been an emotional heavy lift for people of faith communities in the last year. Absolutely. Within our uh, church context, uh, we have grown over this past year in membership, and the majority of the people that have joined our congregation have been white, um, which uh, has been exciting to some degree um, as they've uh, they, they wanted to sit under a black pastor. They wanted to sit under black leadership and be led. And so on the one hand where it's exciting, on the other hand, it can be exhausting as there is this sense of uh, from them where they want you to teach them everything or they want to learn everything. But we've challenged them and we've been uh, very clear to say, no, you have to do some of that work on your own. You have to learn yourself um, as well. But there, there's also been a... Um, the exhausting part as well has been, there's been a little bit of a reckoning, at least within the Christian faith community, where uh, people have asked critical questions, uh, specifically of predominantly white congregations, about how does your faith address these things, and uh, white supremacy that has permeated the, uh, ch the church uh, really since uh, America's inception um, is, is now being challenged. And so it's an exciting time, but it's also an exhausting time. We saw this as any natural disaster or any disaster because it's a disaster that's been going on for 400 years. And we knew that with natural disasters, the way how America's tradition approached it is, the camera crew shows up, you know, we get out the blankets, <laughs> we get them the water, and then after that, see y'all later. You know what I'm saying? And so we have to treat this like the disaster it is to where we're talking about long-term mitigation efforts. We also talk about how we'd never get here again and also better preparedness. And so one of the things that I'm, I'm hopeful about is that now we're speaking as one community with one voice. We're like one set of buffaloes charging in the same direction and ensuring that regardless of the outcome of the trial, we know that we're going to continue to build a model city here in Minneapolis. Alexandria, when, when you and I last talked here, there was actually disagreement among the panelists about whether police brutality existed and whether there was racism in policing in this country. Do you think we've moved forward on that discussion? I do think we have. One thing I look at as a demonstration of that needle shifting slightly is the jury questionnaire um, for these two for this jury that has uh, been selected now in the Derek Chauvin trial. There were questions on the questionnaire that had to do with um, the belief about uh, and the understanding of racism in, and systemic injustice and in policing and things like that. Um, there were questions that asked about the prospective jurors' beliefs about Black Lives Matter, Blue Lives Matter. And I think there is a strong belief now that there is racism and, and injustice and, uh, in policing and, and, and in society. And that's on a national level, Pastor. Let's talk about this city. There has been like a line in the sand to me that has kind of been drawn about this issue. Um, I think more people either have a strong opinion or don't have a strong opinion about it, um, or have a strong opinion one way or the other right. about it, I should say. And so even within the city, I think those, those opinions are becoming even more pronounced. And then I think from our, our government, our local officials, um, I think that they're addressing it in a way where it seems like the opinion is, yes, we admit, we confess that this is a reality uh, that is, is a part of policing in America and has been a part of policing in our city as well. And so I, I think that we're seeing that needle shift. I feel like the needle has shifted, but not enough for me, not enough for my community. Um, I think there have been conversations about reforming police. Um, and law enforcement, and to me that isn't enough. I think restructuring and re repurposing white supremacy will not get rid of police brutality. You can't reform racism, and the way to 
like dissolve police brutality is to abolish the law enforcement, to put community members at the forefront of solving community issues. All right, you're going to hear more of that conversation in the next hour. George Floyd's death reignited a modern civil rights movement that sought to, among many things, reform America's broken justice system. We'll have that next. Not much, but a little bit. All right, I'm here in Minneapolis, right outside the Hennepin County Courthouse, where ex-Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin will face trial starting tomorrow. And I want to take a minute to talk about what's happened since the death of George Floyd last May. The infamous video that appears to show Derek Chauvin choking the life out of George Floyd with the weight of his full body has rocked this country. But just because we all bore witness to what happened to George Floyd doesn't mean justice is guaranteed. No matter what the outcome of the trial, George Floyd and the video of his death lit a match in America. It made millions question the foundations that our country stands on, the trust we hold in law enforcement and the intentions of our leaders. Floyd reignited a modern civil rights movement. We saw people of all ages and backgrounds take to the streets to stand up for justice and the need for change. The needle has moved on social justice. There's no question about that. George Floyd's political, George Floyd's death sparked political activity like voting. It motivated white people to take a stand against racism and a system that they benefit from. Joining me now is the Vice President of the Minneapolis City Council, Andrea Jenkins, who declared her commitment alongside her eight fellow council members to defund and dismantle the police right here in Minneapolis. Uh, Councilwoman Jenkins, good to see you again. Thank you for being with us. You and I have had the opportunity to talk a lot over the last 10 months. And I want you to tell me what's changed in the last 10 months in policing as it relates to Minneapolis. Good morning. So a number of things have changed. Um, that particular maneuver that we saw um, is banned and it's no longer uh, acceptable in the Minneapolis Police Department. We um, transferred $8 million um, to the um, Department of um, Violence Prevention to be able to create some crime prevention opportunities to develop a mental health response so that we're not always sending uh, officers with guns out to situations that don't necessarily require that. Um, you know, the, the mayor and the police chief have made a no number of other um, changes to police policy to um, hold police accountable uh, for their actions. And so... You know, we're we're getting a number of changes. We reintroduced the um, charter amendment to um, create a Department of Public Safety. So that potentially will be on the ballot again this coming November. Now, th this concept of defunding police, what, what you did is you took a certain amount of the police budget and, and redirected it to other places. Minneapolis, like a lot of other major cities in America, has seen an up, uptick in violent crime and in homicides. And mm -hmm. there are some people, my colleague Shaquille Brewster was talking to a pastor here who thought maybe that was ill-advised at this time. Is there a connection between the rise in crime rate, the reduction in the number of police officers in Minneapolis, and this, this effort to, uh, to reduce some funding to them? Well, I, I think the reduction of police officers certainly has a, um, an impact. Police left. Um, for a number of reasons. Some took early retirement. Some were dealing with um, PTSD. You know, some 
just quit the department altogether. You know, we see an uptick in crime all over the country. So did did our declaration produce more crime all over the country? I don't think so. I think there's a a significant um, impact of COVID-19 and the pandemic that has really disrupted our communities and made people desperate, particularly black and brown people who have been disproportionately impacted by COVID-19. And, um, you know, young people aren't going to school. Um, it, there's a number of factors. So that's my opinion. I did see that interview. Too. There's one factor that comes into play in a lot of cities, including this one. <clears throat> and it's sometimes the difficulty the police unions uh, the role that they play, not just in the, the great stuff that unions do, and that is collective bargaining for their people and bargaining for, for better rights, mm-hmm. but this entrenchment when it comes to police who are bad. Uh, and your union in this city is uniquely bad. Um, you have, a, you have a, a police union that doesn't want to see, or a police union leader who doesn't want to see any improvements. They don't think that anything that those police did last May was wrong. How do you deal with that? Well, one of the early retirements was that uh, union leader. And so he is no longer uh, on the Minneapolis Police Department, nor is he uh, leading the union. However, you know, the issues are systemic, right? And so we are working to, um, to, to be able to impact uh, the union contract in ways we're partnering with some law firms to be able to... Um, Think about how we can change some of these um, union um, demands and and really uh, hold police more accountable. I think the fact that um, that uh, former union leader is gone gives us an opportunity, as well as the fact that, you know, the, the police officers that have left have given us an opportunity to reshape and um, reimagine the public uh, safety mechanism in the city of Minneapolis. We always appreciate the time you take to uh, come and join us in person. And I'm sorry, it's so cold this morning. But we, it's chilly. <laughs> we afraid it is a cold one out here. Thank you for seeing, for being with us. This Thank morning. you so much. Councilwoman, uh, Vice President uh, of the Minneapolis Council, uh, Andrea Jenkins. All right, don't go anywhere. Our special coverage ahead of uh, the Derek Chauvin trial continues live from Minneapolis just after a quick break. On tap for our next hour, Minnesota Congresswoman Ilhan Omar and Wisconsin Representative Gwen Moore. You won't want to miss it. Belsha continues after this. Former President Donald Trump is facing 91 indictment charges, yet he remains the Republican frontrunner. On MSNBC's podcast, Prosecuting Donald Trump, veteran prosecutors Andrew Weissman and Mary McCord break down the biggest legal developments and how they could alter the election. Never had a president who engaged in this kind of conduct who's running for office. He is using the criminal cases for his own campaigning. Search for Prosecuting Donald Trump wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Tuesday. 
Good morning. It's Sunday, March 28th. I'm Ali Valshi, live in Minneapolis, Minnesota, for our special eight minutes, 40 seconds, 47 seconds, the trial of Derek Chauvin. That's infamously the amount of time the former Minneapolis police officer knelt on George Floyd's neck before Floyd died just 10 months ago. I'm outside Hennepin County Courthouse, where Chauvin's trial is set to begin tomorrow. It will be televised, and it will be one of the most closely watched trials in modern history. Now, throughout this hour, we're going to be breaking down the case, the prosecution, as well as the defense, in addition to the tremendous stakes here, stakes that continue to have importance throughout the country. And now authorities say that late Friday in Virginia Beach, a police officer fatally shot a 25-year-old black man while responding to reports of shootings in the area. That officer did not have his body camera turned on at the time. We're going to have much more on that shooting later in the show as well. Minneapolis is a city I know well. I was here multiple times last year covering the Floyd killing and the ensuing demonstrations which ignited the largest racial justice movement in decades across this country. And the reason I'm back here today is to bear witness, to talk to black citizens and leaders from this community, to learn about their struggles and to bring their stories directly to you. On this trip, I spoke with folks about what they expect from the trial, both inside and outside the courtroom, as well as the state of present-day Minneapolis. What has changed for the better? What has changed for the worse? Security, where I am right now, is tight, with demonstrations expected throughout the coming weeks. Ahead of the trial, the city of Minneapolis has already reached a $27 million settlement with Floyd's family for his wrongful death. Derek Chauvin faces second-degree murder charges, unintentional murder charges, and third-degree murder charges, as well as second-degree manslaughter, all of which have different sentences and different standards that need to be proven in court beyond a reasonable doubt. This is criminal court. That's the standard. The prosecution is being led by the Minnesota Attorney General, Keith Ellison, who was appointed by the governor days after the incident last year. Now, in addition to the video footage that shows Derek Chauvin kneeling on George Floyd's neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds, while Floyd said he couldn't breathe until indeed he lost all his breath and he died, the Hennepin County Medical Examiner's Office declared Floyd's death a homicide soon after, and separately, two independent autopsies commissioned by the Floyd family concluded that Floyd died from asphyxiation from sustained pressure. Those last two autopsies commissioned by Floyd's family found no underlying health conditions played a role. However, the defense is expected to argue something different. They are expected to argue that Floyd's health conditions did play a role in his death, as did the drug fentanyl, a drug which that original Hennepin County Medical Examiner's Office report included in a list of, quote, other conditions that may have been involved in Floyd's death, which also include heart disease. Three other ex-officers involved in Floyd's arrest are set to stand trial in August on a variety of charges related to the killing. However, those cases hinge on the verdict in the Chauvin trial. Joining me now is NBC News correspondent Shaquille Brewster. Shaq, you've been on this story since the beginning. When I arrived in Minneapolis uh, uh, at the end of May last year, you had already been here and you have been covering it since from both inside uh, and now it's going to be in, uh, outside the courthouse and now inside. What are you expecting? Well, what we're expecting is prosecutors starting tomorrow to begin making the case against that ex-officer Derek Chauvin. We know that court will be in session at 9 a.m. local time. We'll hear from the judge initially. He'll then swear in that 14-member jury panel, and then we'll hear the opening statement 
from the prosecution. And attorneys here warn the opening statement is not going to be that law and order moment that we're so used to, that emotional argument. It's a statement. It's going to be them laying out what we will hear over the course of the trial. They'll preview some of that evidence. And that's what we'll uh, watch take place in the courtroom tomorrow. And then eventually we'll get to witnesses. All that is happening as you're seeing outside the courthouse, these security measures. You see them behind me. You see them behind you. The high fencing, the barbed wire, the concrete barriers, downtown area under essentially lockdown in at least around the courthouse. And that's a scene that you see throughout the city in various areas. So that is something that's continuing, something that you heard from the mayor and the police chief of Minneapolis last week. They said that the so-called operation safety net, so not only the physical modifications, but that uh, pairing with local law enforcement agencies, uh, local and federal law enforcement agencies, that will only increase. They say you'll can, you can expect to see a gradual increase of law enforcement presence, of National Guard presence here in the city of Minneapolis as the trial continues. We know the trial is expected to last about three to four weeks, Ali. Shaq, we'll stay close to you through the course of the trial. Thank you again for your excellent reporting over the course of the last year on this topic. Shaquille Brewster, NBC News correspondent, here with me in Minneapolis. Well, the movement ignited the killing, uh, ignited by the killing of George Floyd, the largest racial equality movement in American history, has taken place entirely during the COVID-19 pandemic. And the pandemic not only remains a major issue, but is now once again getting worse as more and more states are prematurely waving the victory flag and removing health restrictions, and as the long-warned-about coronavirus variants become ever more prevalent. Daily new cases of COVID-19 are once again rising, now surpassing 70,000 new cases a day. Daily deaths remain between 1,000 and 1,500 a day. More than 51,000 people have now died from COVID-19. Uh, I'm sorry, more than uh, 551,000 people have now died from COVID-19 in the United States. The positive outlook is that vaccinations are also increasing. Daily doses administered now consistently above 3 million a day. More than 140 million people in total, just over 27% of the American population has had at least one dose of the COVID-19 vaccine. 15% of the entire population is fully vaccinated. The other major story we're covering today has its epicenter 1,100 miles south-southwest of here, but it's threatening to spread across the country. In Georgia, demonstrators took to the streets in Atlanta for a voting rights rally, something which present-day 2021 Republicans across the country are actively trying to suppress. Georgia Republicans just passed massive new voting restriction laws full of draconian measures aimed at making it harder for certain populations to vote, laws that President Biden has called, quote, Jim Crow in the 21st century. The laws also effectively give the historically Republican legislature the power to overturn elections that they don't like the outcome of, to throw out the will of the people when the people vote against them. The rally in Atlanta was also a massive show of support for Georgia State Representative Park Cannon, who was arrested and literally pulled out of the state capitol by state troopers because she had knocked on Governor Brian Kemp's statehouse office door after he signed the bill into law during a cowardly closed-door ceremony. 
Joining me now is Congresswoman Gwen Moore of Wisconsin. She's a member of the Congressional Black Caucus. She was the first African-American elected to the Congress from the state of Wisconsin. Congresswoman Moore, good to see you. Thank you for being with us. I, we have so much to discuss this week, including this trial and the state of race relations in America and things at the border and guns. Uh, but I want to start with Atlanta, where democracy itself is under attack. Uh, and Georgia is just the guinea pig for this. We are seeing things like this in uh, in Arizona. We're seeing it in Iowa. We're seeing it in Michigan. Uh, but Georgia, what has happened in Georgia uh, is something that should be very worrisome to all Americans. And we ought to thank good morning, Allie. And we ought to see it as Armageddon and, and the struggle and fight for our democracy. Uh, what uh, you laid it out beautifully, uh, Allie, when you the most egregious part of this legislation was for them, for the legislature to put in statute what Donald Trump couldn't accomplish by trying to intimidate the Secretary of State. They literally have stripped him of his power and uh, uh, relegated those duties to a state board chosen by the legislature. And then the legislature ultimately could find, what was it, Allie, about 11,780-something mm-hmm. votes? Uh, and uh, uh, that, and then not being able to give people water when you deliberately uh, increase uh, the need to stand in line by taking away drop boxes and limiting voting, uh, it's all part of a perfect plan. And I think the worse this bill is, the better the, the, the better it's going to be for our Justice Department and for those litigants to intervene. And this is an interesting point. It may be better for others to intervene, but what does it do for Americans? And I, I, I was going to say black Americans, but the issue isn't black Americans. The issue is all Americans, because these erosions in our guaranteed rights to vote will affect all of us, regardless of the color of our skin. Eventually, if we say that legislatures can erode the the way in which we vote, that is bad for every single one of us, even if you're not black. I mean, if you are an elderly white woman, you better go out and get yourself a, a photocopier right now in Georgia so that you can you can and, and get you some Wi-Fi and scan your driver's license. And if you don't drive, you, you got to go get a driver's license in order to be able to vote. Uh, it really uh, the lawsuit really uh, contends that they're violating people's First Amendment, 14th Amendment rights and Section two of the Voting Rights Act. Uh, this is the reason that we need H.R. four, the John Lewis H.R. four bill, as well as H.R. one. And H.R. 1 and H.R. 4 uh, need to be passed by the United States Senate. And this is kind of remarkable uh, because you would think that everybody, Democrat and Republican, would be able to look at the state of Georgia, happens to be run by Republicans at the moment, but to say this is not partisan. If Republicans want to win elections in this country, they need to win it in the arena of ideas, not win it on the basis of changing rules that they put into place in the first place. All those things that changed in Georgia were things that existed under Republican uh, government there that worked fine for Republicans until suddenly it didn't, until suddenly more people voted for Democrats and Republicans. So now the rules must be broken and they're using voter fraud as the excuse, although none of the changes here 
actually fix anything that you'd think of as voter fraud, which the secretary of state in Georgia said doesn't exist? Well, I mean, there are three reasons that this is happening, Allie. I mean, demographics and, and demographics and demographics. I mean, the reality is, is that the Republican Party, unfortunately, has become the party of white people. My, my grandmother, for whom I named, died a Republican. But it, it, it has become the party of white people. Uh, and the demographic shift is such that uh, in this country, people are more likely to look like us alley than they are uh, white people. And so once panic sets in, it's just impossible to reverse it. They're panicking over being in the minority uh, as a race. They're panicking uh, over sharing power and wealth. And it's really sad to see uh, the dissolution of the Grand Ole Party. Congresswoman, good to talk to you as always. Thank you for uh, being with us again. Representative Gwen Moore is a Democratic congresswoman from Wisconsin. Well, America's leading oil and gas lobby is reversing its stance on carbon pricing, arguing that it is key to fight climate change. But critics of the oil industry are warning others not to fall for what they see as a PR ploy. I'll explain when we come back. After years of fighting at the oil and gas industry's largest trade group, the American Petroleum Institute last week came out in support of pricing carbon admissions, putting a cost on how much you emit. The group said in a statement, quote, we think it's the most impactful way to address the risk of climate change, end quote. The change comes as President Biden is set to announce a sweeping infrastructure proposal focused on transitioning to clean energy, a plan the administration has sworn would create a path toward net zero emissions by 2050. Now, according to the EPA, the largest source of greenhouse gas emissions in the United States is from burning fossil fuels for electricity, heat, and transportation. Remember, we're about 5% of the world's population, but about 25% of the world's burning of gasoline for driving. It is still unclear how much of a tax would be needed in order to change behavior to effectively curb greenhouse gases. And while support from oil and gas groups sounds like progress... Keep in mind, they, they just want to be in the process because they know that's the way things are going. The aim from the oil and gas industry is to keep a carbon tax as low as possible in order to maximize their profits and still keep selling their goods. There may be another celebration. There may be another reason not to celebrate yet. Environment groups have already come out to say that the American Petroleum Institute uh, statement is self-serving, greenwashing, which will do nothing to fight the climate emergency. And they've accused the API of, quote, trying desperately to distract the Biden administration from the crucial work of keeping polluting fossil fuels in the ground. We're going to keep a very close eye on this story. We're coming to you from Minneapolis less than 24 hours before the start of the Derek Chauvin trial with the world watching and waiting to see if justice will be served for George Floyd. I spoke with a panel of Minneapolis residents who sounded off on the trial and lost no time expressing the concerns and anger they feel over George Floyd's death to this very day. This was not a shooting. This was nine minutes of a man with a smug look on his face and his hands in his pockets 
kneeling on another man's neck. He wouldn't have done that to a dog in the street. We've seen the evidence. The world has seen literally the evidence for it. And so if there, for there not to be a conviction uh, would be <laughs> injustice toward, you know, of course, the family, the community. I believe it would be an injustice toward God. I believe God would be grieved by this. Eight minutes and 46 seconds. That's how long former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin pressed his knee on the back of George Floyd's neck. The world has seen the evidence. It looks very clear cut. But according to the legal experts I've talked to, there's never a slam dunk case when it comes to police killings. So I asked my panel of six residents from the Minneapolis area, what happens if there isn't a conviction? I can't let myself think about that. I, I started to, and I just started crying. I, I, I mean, there, one of the biggest differences between this case and so many other cases of police brutality is this was not a shooting. This was nine minutes of a man with a smug look on his face and his hands in his pockets kneeling on another man's neck. He wouldn't have done that to a dog in the street, okay? So to do that to a black man at 38th in Chicago, um, where the whole world saw it, right afterwards on the on the video um i just i can't imagine there not being a, a conviction i'm trying to keep hopeful for my students for my community um i think that when i let my mind get there um and think about that reality of, of no conviction um i think of the community that has been continuously hurt uh, for so long hurting yet again having to relive george floyd's murder um was already traumatic enough, but to then wrestle with the fact that um, his murderer walks away um, scotch-free, I think, will be a testament um, to how strong we can stick together and be unified. What would happen is black people, first of all, won't be surprised if, if he's not convicted, because we've seen it time and time again throughout history. And the question should be then, what do we as a society do about it? What do we as humanity do about it? The white community should be able to stand up now and say, okay, seriously, we see you black people. We saw that for nine minutes and now we are going to ensure this never happens again. As so many have already said, we can't think about if there's no uh, conviction. We must attend to healing black emotional pain and we must continue to fight to put in the resources that dismantle white supremacy culture. People will galvanize, people will attend to their own emotional healing, and we will fight, and we will march on, and we will not stop until this kind of activity ceases. I think the reality of what we saw, we, we've seen the evidence, the world has seen literally the evidence for it. And so if there, for there not to be a conviction uh, would be <laughs> injustice toward, you know, of course, the family, the community. I believe it would be injustice toward God. I believe God would be grieved by this and that uh, we would, as a country, face a reckoning in that, with that reality. Um, I, and I believe as people come to me or have come to me, if they do come to me, first thing I'll tell them is that, it's okay to be angry about this. I think it's very much okay to be angry about this if something like that, if there isn't a conviction to be had. But I think at that, that next step, we would have to figure out how do we channel that anger <laughs> into uh, pressing forward for true and real reform. And honestly, that sounds wonderful, but I have no idea how you even get there. I was at protest. I took my daughter to protest. And 
If there's not a conviction, she's seven years old. How do I explain that to her? How do I explain what's right, what's wrong, what, what's fair, what's not fair to her? And I think that beyond our generation for the kids, that's what, this, that's what a conviction means. A conviction gives hope to children to say, you know, when somebody does something that is blatantly wrong, they're gonna be held accountable for that. So again, beyond this trial and beyond the, the uh, a conviction or an acquittal, what change do you want to see given that we're all heightened to it now, we're all aware of it? What I'm looking forward to is how we figure out how to have social liberation, to how we rewrite her story and how we interact with each other, how we focus on healing and supporting each other. I'm looking for economic liberation to where black people can produce what they need um, without the barriers and without the hurdles to where we can lift ourselves up. We can provide our own supermarkets and our own food in our food desert where we live. I'm expecting political liberation to where our people can show up to freely vote and exercise their democratic right. This is America, the beacon of democracy. So collectively, if we have that economic liberation, that social liberation, and that political liberation, hopefully we can have the long-term changes that we want for the next generations to come. I want to see the passion and the fire of the young people, of youth matched with the knowledge and wisdom of history of the people who have been fighting this fight for a lifetime. I want to see those things come together so that we have a coordinated, wise response to everything that has emerged, because nothing has changed. When you read the autobiography of Malcolm X, particularly chapter 18, it is if he is talking about 2021. It is the same, that we have been doing this in some version, some fashion for 400 years, hmm. and the story has not changed. And so we have to know that history. We have to know what has happened in the past. And we have to combine that with the passion of the youth. And that is unstoppable. What do you think about that passion? Is it here? You're feeling it? Is, is it has it continued? Is it growing? Yeah, I, I, I think it's here. Um, I, we're, I'm definitely believe we're still feeling it. I think that it is growing. I do think that in some people, they are shrinking back into apathy as well. And I think we have to continue to figure out how do we feel the fire behind these things. One of the things that I observed um, very glaringly when everything was happening last summer was that it was it's so easy to be removed from what's going on around you. You go outside of Minneapolis, you go outside of St. Paul, and it's like nothing happened and people are living in in Pleasantville. And it's almost like people are willfully blind and ignorant to what's happening around them because it's, it's uncomfortable and they don't wanna be bothered with that or it's not their issue. And I think it's so important for people to just really take a critical look at themselves, honestly, and say like, what a privilege it is to not be bothered. Like what a privilege it is to be removed from everything that's going on around me or be removed from any issue that's affecting a certain group of people. I think that it's very, it's prevalent in up here and other places as well. As you know, I've been traveling around the country talking to people for a year. I enjoyed talking to that group so much. My thanks to them and to my crew and the great folks at uh, Nicolette Island Pavilion for providing us for, with a location for the second time in a year to have that conversation. By the way, the mask's on uh, because I'm going to be having a conversation with somebody nearby after the break. Uh, on the eve of the opening statements of the Derek Chauvin trial, one thing is clear, this trial should have never had to happen. 
George Floyd's death is another example of black men being unjustly dealt the ultimate penalty for petty crimes. But first, the battle for voting rights intensifying in Georgia. Democratic Senator Raphael Warnock appeared on CNN just moments ago. Here's what he had to say on the topic. Georgia has a long history of voter suppression. And when I say a long history, I mean in recent, in recent years. And uh, certainly it has ramped up with this bill that he signed into law the other night, uh, as you pointed out, uh, in the presence of, of all white men. And on the other side was a state legislature, state legislator elected by her people uh, to represent them. And she was lightly knocking on the door and was arrested and charged with two felonies. Georgia needs to understand that is those in the state legislature, the governor, uh, that it wasn't just this state legislator who's a member of my church. And I went to see about her that night. Uh, she's not the only one knocking at that door. The people are knocking at the door of their democracy and they will not be denied. Starting tomorrow, all eyes will be on this courthouse behind me. Ex-Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin goes on trial for the death of George Floyd. Over the next few weeks, you're going to hear a handful of arguments for and against Chauvin's guilt. But we cannot lose fact of this, lose sight of this. What happened on May 25th, 2020, never should have escalated to death. End of story. Floyd was arrested last year when a convenience store clerk claimed that he used a counterfeit $20 bill to buy cigarettes, an alleged petty crime that triggered a series of police actions that ultimately led to George Floyd's death. Now, whatever you think of George Floyd, passing a counterfeit $20 bill is the kind of misdemeanor that usually results in little to no jail time. Yet somehow, George Floyd ended up with a death sentence with no right to a judge or a jury. This is one of the major problems with our justice system. The punishment often does not fit the crime. Americans have marched in the streets too many times for black men and women who paid the ultimate price for allegedly committing an insignificant crime. Philando Castile, gunned down by police in the front seat of his car. His girlfriend, seated next, seated next to him, her, his four, her four-year-old daughter in the back seat. He was pulled over for a broken taillight. Michael Brown, shot and killed in Ferguson, Missouri. He was stopped for walking in the middle of the road. It's alleged that he stole a pack of cigarillos from a convenience store. Eric Garner, police locked him in a chokehold and slammed him to the ground for allegedly selling loose cigarettes on the streets of Staten Island. I'm emphasizing the word alleged because in the United States of America, you're innocent until you're proven guilty, but there's no due process when a police officer becomes your judge, your jury, and your executioner. There's little problem solving left in policing. Jenny Roberts, a professor of law, says these two things should be considered when making an arrest. Will this promote public safety or will it make the situation worse? She writes for NBC Think, quote, every interaction with law enforcement can lead someone down a path of increasing consequences. And justice is not served when the enforcement of a low level offense like the alleged use of a counterfeit $20 bill is prioritized over the life and the livelihood of a person. Jenny Roberts joined me now. She's a professor of law and co-director of the Criminal Justice Clinic at American University Washington Call of Law. Jenny, thank you for being with us. What's the way around this? Because if you were called to this store in Minneapolis 
because someone passed a $20 counterfeit bill, allegedly. What You got to think through, how does this not end up launching a civil rights movement in which businesses have been burned, people have been injured, more arrests have occurred? That can't be the desired outcome to whatever it was that was alleged that George Floyd did on that day, on March 25th. Yeah, that's right. Um, one way around it is massive tamping down of the misdemeanor system in this country. So misdemeanors are low-level crimes, generally don't lead to more than a year in jail, often don't lead to any jail time. I think what a lot of people don't realize is that 80% of cases in the criminal legal system are misdemeanor cases. So if you walk into a criminal court, you might be expecting to see homicides, robberies, um, what you will see is 80% of the cases in those courts are going to be misdemeanors and often very low level misdemeanors. So I think the real question is, first question is, do we need these things to be crimes? Is the criminal legal system even the place we want to be dealing with some of these problems? And some of them, are they even problems? What's the model for dealing with some things? I don't think Anybody thinks we should be in a society where small things go entirely unnoticed, but what's the way of dealing with small crimes? Stealing a pack of cigarettes, selling loose cigarettes. We're not 100% sure why that's a crime, but uh, selling loose cigarettes or passing a $20 bill. What's the way to deal with that so that it never escalates to death? And not only that, you've written that it, it causes people to disengage with the legal system more when they're charged with small crimes. Yes, exactly. And that's a big problem. If you've got this mass misdemeanor system, which we have, we have mass criminalization in addition to mass incarceration in this country. One in three adults in the United States has some kind of arresting conviction record or conviction record. And most of those come from misdemeanors. So you've got to ask how much people really believe in the legitimacy of a system that arrests so many people and gives them these criminal records that follow them for the rest of their lives and really make it hard to go out and be productive members of society because that record is there in most cases. Um, there are opportunities sometimes to expunge records, but it's difficult in some places. So um, in answer to your question of what do you do? Well, not everything needs to be a crime and the criminal legal system is not the answer to everything. Um, we too often turn to it. So take jaywalking. If jaywalking is a problem, is it that we need the police? Do we want them to be focusing their resources on jaywalking? Um, is there some other way we might approach it through education, um, through talking to people, um, through more crosswalks in places where crosswalks are needed? Um, if that can save people's lives, um, then I'm all for it. Teddy Roberts, it's a good discussion. I'd like to have it with you some more to talk about some of the ways in which uh, cities are implementing ideas where they can depoliticize and decriminalize uh, some of these things. Jenny Roberts is the co-director of the Criminal Justice Clinic at American University's Washington College of Law. Thanks for being with us. I want to check in with my friend Jonathan Capehart. He's sitting in the anchor chair at the top of the hour. Jonathan, good morning. I talked to you on Friday night and I said, we got to start talking a little bit more on this show. And here you already are. Right. What have you got on the on the Sunday show coming up? 
Well, first of all, Ali, you're going to be joining us later to continue our coverage of the Chauvin trial. We're also getting a reality check on the situation at the border with Congresswoman Veronica Escobar, who just led a bipartisan delegation to the border. She also spoke to Vice President Kamala Harris, who's now the White House point person on immigration. I'm going to ask her about that conversation. We'll also be covering the fight against voter suppression in Georgia and beyond. I'll talk to D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser about the quest to make D.C. our 51st state and some of the ridiculous objections that are coming from Republicans. As you can tell, we've got a lot to cover on the Sunday show this morning, Allie. Sounds good, and I will be with you, as you said, uh, in the 10 o'clock Eastern hour. Jonathan Capehart is the host of the Sunday show on MSNBC. Stick around. Jonathan's going to be there at the top of the hour, 10 a.m. Eastern, and we'll be right back. For the last two and a half weeks, we've seen and heard about a jury selection process, and we've gotten a hint of how the judge, the prosecutors, and the defense attorneys and the jury might all work when the trial of Derek Chauvin, the former police officer accused of murdering George Floyd, begins tomorrow. The jury's made up of nine women and six men. Nine of the jurors identify as white, four as black, and two as mixed race, ranging in age from their 20s to their 60s. There are 15 people in total. They need 14 in total, 12 jurors and two alternates. So if all 14 show up tomorrow, the extra selected alternate will likely be dismissed. The world witnessed the video of the now ex-police officer kneeling on the neck of the 46-year-old black man who essentially narrated his own death for part of the eight minutes and 46 seconds that the police officer was on his neck until he lost consciousness and died. It's been almost 12 months, 10 months, since that unforgettable day with thousands of protests, marches, countless hours of media coverage behind us. Now the focus shifts from the discussions of race and policing to the actual trial behind me where the defense hopes the questions to be deliberated aren't what Jer Derek Chauvin did to George Floyd, but rather, how exactly did George Floyd die? Congressional delegations from both parties visited the same U.S. border with Mexico this past week. Their takeaways were very different. One group declared a migrant disaster. The other emphasized the humanitarian toll faced by migrants crossing the border. You can guess who said what. By uh, day one, Republicans coasted uh, the uh, Rio Grande in a speedboat armed with military-style weapons. By nightfall, Senator Ted Cruz made it his personal mission to try and expose, take a look at this picture, what he calls the border crisis. Cruz released this video live from a bush on Thursday night, claiming to witness smugglers, cartel members, and human traffickers on Mexico's side of the river. It was an Oscar-worthy performance, if you ask me. Maybe if that crisis were in Cancun, he'd have shown up sooner. In reality, surges in migration are common. The border problem didn't begin when Joe Biden was elected as president. It's been going on for a long time but the influx of children at the border is steadily increasing. Congresswoman Ilhan Omar of Minnesota visited migrant families with Democratic lawmakers on Friday. She has a personal relationship with those who come at a young age because once she was one of them, a refugee seeking asylum. At the end of the day, at the center and the heart of this conversation are children. Children who are fleeing unconscionable situations, who desperately need for us 
to meet them with dignity and humanity and to make sure that we are living up to international what international law dictates and what our laws dictate in regards to allowing people to seek asylum in our country. Representative Omar joins me now here in Minneapolis. Great to see you. Good morning. Yeah, great to be here without you, Ali. Thank you very much. Let's talk about this whole idea of asylum and refugees. This is something that we're missing here. The, the United States, since the 60s and again in the 80s, is party to international agreements about how you deal with refugees. That's separate and apart from immigration, and it's separate and apart from border security. That's something that people have difficulty with. You don't because you experience that. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I try to explain, you know, to my colleagues that this happens at every border when a neighboring country has a crisis. People tend to seek refuge in the country that is not having the crisis. Uh, and so our neighbors are having a crisis and there are children who are coming to our border seeking a better life. I was one of those kids when my country fell into civil war in Somalia I fled to neighboring country, Kenya, and I was met with humanity and dignity because people had understanding and respect for international law. Most of the kids that are coming are young children who not only endured horrendous situations as they traveled from their home to our border, but also are escaping horrendous situations. So the last thing we should be doing is playing politics and games uh, and uh, not expediting the process in reconnecting them with their family and relatives here in the United States. And I think a message that people get confused is one of safety and security. These children, unaccompanied minors, you may, whatever you may think about why unaccompanied minors are appearing or what their parents were doing, the fact of the matter is they do not pose either an economic job crisis for us or a security crisis for us. Precisely. So now what do you think about having seen this, what needs to actually be solved? It seems to me that there are two problems, how we manage asylum seekers who come across the border and how we manage immigration policy. And immigration policy needs to be more sophisticated than just border policy. So what we learned is that, you know, these searches happen, right? Um, And we are not uh, a country that has prepared and formulated a plan to deal with these searches that periodically take place. Uh, And so what the emergency management managers uh, at the center that we visited told us was that what is needed is for there to be a deployment of all agencies at the border so that these kids can get processed. Those that have family members and relatives can move through the process. Others who are uh, in need of a sponsor or a foster family um, can can also move through the process. Uh, And, you know, we don't have to have these unacceptable conditions that kids are living in while they're being held at the border and then moving them to another center like the one that we visited and then starting that process. Sometimes it could take up to six months uh, in, in moving through that. The other thing that we have to deal with is that it, there isn't a crisis at the border. There's a crisis that's happening with our neighboring countries. And there is a collective effort that we can engage in to mitigate the causes of migration. We all understand it. 
We all know why they happen, and we have the resources diplomatically to deal with them. Uh, back to here in Minneapolis, I've spoken to a number of your constituents. They are anxious and fearful and, and paying great attention to this trial that's getting underway tomorrow. What are your thoughts? I mean, our community has been through a lot. Uh, witnessing the murder of George Floyd, dealing with the uh, trauma that that comes from that, and then having to endure the uprising. It's also a community that knows what it means to not get justice. So a lot of us are anxiously awaiting for this trial to begin and for justice to be rendered. We know that the police unions have uh, lots of money and they're going to deploy every effort to defend the police officer that's indicted for the murder of George Floyd. But there's a lot of trust in Attorney General Keith Ellison and his team, uh, and people are just anxiously awaiting for this trial to proceed. Congresswoman, thank you for being with us this morning. Good to see you in person, yeah. and it's good to be in your city. Congresswoman Ilhan Omar of uh, Minnesota. And that uh, brings us to the end of this show for today. 